Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns or an organisation driving change in your community, Dunn Street develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organises them from the ground up to achieve common goals. To find out how Dunn Street can partner with you, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Welcome to episode nine of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day uh, and the people that are leading them from both home and abroad. On today's episode, we'll be joined by writer and social commentator, Jamila Rizvi. Uh, She will be on to talk about gender equality, the pay gap, social norms and the pushback from blokes over uh, the advancement of women. Um, I am absolutely hopeless on this issue, uh, but it is an important one and I really wanted to get Jamila on to talk about it, so I apologise for all of my stupid questions. Um, But I think the things that she'll have to say on today's show will be incredibly enlightening If not for for all of you, it certainly will be for me. Um, Thanks to everyone who gave us feedback on last week's podcast uh, with the ACTU Assistant Secretary, Liam Um, O'Brien. We got some great uh, feedback uh, on all of our various socials. Izzy from Brisbane, a big shout out to Izzy. Uh, She says, I listened to Donnelly's, that's me, podcast on the long drives between Queensland cities and suburbs, travelling to meet workers to encourage them to politicise, unionise and organise. Critical listening for those who want to know what's up with politics right now. Insightful, relevant and good company. Good on you, Izzy. Thank you very much for that positive uh, feedback. Um, And Janamouth um, from Melbourne has said, I haven't really listened to podcasts before, but this was recommended to me and I'm hooked. Great conversational style and a bunch of insider info that's hard to get from newspapers and TV. Love it. Uh, Jenna, love your comments. Thanks very much. And if you want to leave comments, don't forget to subscribe to Socially Democratic on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if obviously if you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and leave us a review. And on all of your social medias, uh, don't forget to share it amongst your network. Um, and for updates, just follow us at Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Tuesday afternoon in downtown Melbourne, and it's great to welcome on to Socially Democratic, Jamila Rizvi. How are you, Jamila? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm good. However, having said that, I, I feel that today I'm actually a little bit flat and there are two reasons for that. One, I just finished watching Chernobyl last <laughs> yeah, night. Yeah, that's a way to bring, in, bring the mood down. I know, on HBO and I'm a little bit freaked out by all of that. Uh, I found that when I first started, have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. The opening scene of the very first episode when the um, power plant exploded, I didn't realise this, but at the time I had my jumper on and I slowly lifted it over my mouth and nose. <laughs> to keep yourself safe. Yeah. So you didn't breathe in the fumes. I know. And I and I did it and I suddenly realised, oh, what am I doing? I'm just watching television. So I took yeah. it down, but I couldn't stop doing it. As the whole, that first episode unfolded and you could see the particles yeah. in the air. As a content maker though, like I hear that and I go, that's really good content. You know, if your audience is that immersed that quickly and responding like their own life's at stake, yeah. you're telling, as a, tell, as a storyteller, you're doing your job oh, right. That, 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 uh, that whole uh, series had me hooked and I finished it last night and I just realised, it also dawned on me that um, I was in, as a young kid travelling around with my parents, I was in Germany maybe uh, for maybe two months after the explosion. Yeah, right. So then I went and got out the map to see how far away uh, Chernobyl is from... <laughs> Did you start Googling? Yeah, I was going, Am I yeah, experiencing yeah, could, after effects of radiation? <laughs> yeah, that could explain a lot of things. Uh, and the second thing that freaked me out was this morning I was reading The Guardian, only to discover that Billy Bragg has accused um, Morrissey of being a neo-Nazi, and I'm just now completely distraught that... Your world's shattered. Yeah, and I've been listening <laughs> to The Smiths all day today trying to find subliminal messages that how could Morrissey possibly be ultra right wing I can't find it but then maybe that's what's bringing me down as well is the fact I've been listening to the Smiths all day yeah possibly uh you need something a little bit more upbeat um if we knew each other better I'd say you need to do five or six star jumps to boost your 
boost the tone of your voice. That's what we used to make people do in the podcast studio at Mamma Mia. I'm, uh, well, I'm definitely going to go out for a run after this, that's for sure. I don't need to clear my head. So let's, uh, let's talk about uh, a whole bunch of things um, that, we, uh, that, we wanted, that we want to talk about. The first thing is the last time I saw you was on television and it was the night of the election. And I think you were kind of doing the post-election analysis. Yeah. And I didn't actually hear what you said because we had a whole bunch of people over. So the sound was down, but so I could just see what you were saying, but I could not hear what you were saying. Um, tell me your thought process in going into doing live television on, for example, an election in which you may have already had a preconceived idea about what you thought the outcome was going to be. So therefore you'd think about your thoughts only to then get on and go, oh, I've got to reassess this now. Yeah, well, I was supposed to be on the drum, which was supposed to come on immediately after as a fresh panel of conversationalists immediately after someone claimed victory. And the ABC was expecting that to happen quite early in the night. Um, So we were told, be here at 7pm, we'll have hair and makeup done by 8, we suspect we'll have you on TV by 9.30, maybe 10 o'clock at the latest. It's midnight and Morrison still hasn't come out and we're all sitting there going, is anyone watching? Surely we should just go home. What's the point? Um, So the shock had well and truly settled in, uh, but we were pretty loose, to be honest, because we didn't think anyone was watching. I don't think we went on air till 12.45. It was very late. We just assumed no one was watching, and the next day the numbers came through and it was almost a million. So uh, (laughs) not not ideal, time to be loose. And when I've done enough TV now where you're reacting to live events to know that sometimes you need to do a really strict cut between what you're feeling and doing your job. And that was one of those moments for me. And I had to really suspend myself from the actual outcome and just analyse the outcome and do my job for that night, which was to speak about what the next few years might look like, what might happen over the next few days, what, you know, really early ideas around what that result meant and not let myself feel it, because if you feel it, you're not going to do your job well. And I, I actually think I stayed in that mode for a good four or five days and it wasn't till the next weekend came along that I let myself be quite devastated by what had happened. And a, cra- and a crash happened. With, uh, I mean, obviously you and a lot of the people who read your your writings and, and, and see you on, on TV and, and radio, um, they will have known that you have, in your past life, you were an advisor to Labor governments. Yep. Um, do you, when you went out on your own and started writing, did you think that um, your your if, you, if there was a brand that is Jamila, are you pitching that brand as being, okay, I'm left of centre um, and these are, these are the values that shape who I am, but I'm not, um, I'm not a partisan for the Labor Party? Um, or is it a bit more than that? Like when you go on the ABC, are, you, are they pitching you as being sort of the Labor person coming on the show? Or? No, they're not. They're usually pitching me as a gender expert because that's the space that I'm working in now. And I've moved into the commentary space really firmly. And it's a blurry space, though. Personally, the way I make it clear to myself is I am not a journalist. I don't suggest that I'm a journalist. I'm not objectively reporting in any way. I come to this with a perspective. And that perspective is of being a progressive person and with experience working for a party that is able to form government. And that's what I'm interested in. And that's never going to change. Yeah, And so I get a bit concerned when I see people who are clearly partisan then say, oh, I'm a journalist now. And it's like, well, you could be a journalist maybe in another area, but I don't think you can bring that rigorous objectivity to politics. I think some people do it really well where they've made that career as a commentator and they bring the knowledge that they have from that past working life. They're not ashamed of it. They're really upfront about it and they use it to inform what they do. And on the other side of politics, I think Nikki Sava does it really well. You know, she never suggests that she didn't work for the Liberal Party for a very long time, nor that she is still very much aligned with the Liberal Party in her own views. But she's able to have a little bit of distance, so she's able to talk about what they're doing in a strategic way, as well as a policy sense and an outcomes focus, but also give that 
slightly more objective view while we do know the perspective she's coming from. So I suppose that's what I try and do. But generally when I'm on TV, I they ask how to title me and I usually just say writer and commentator yep. because I, I, I do feel really anxious when they don't ask and they call you a journalist. And I feel like calling and saying, I, I don't think I am, please don't say that. Do you find that uh, co- commentators that are of the centre-left are far more critical um, of... Um, Labor governments than on the other side of the ledger, that is um, sort of the Sky News commentators, I find that they're far more disciplined um, and it's rare to see them stick the boot into their the, to a conservative government. Um, and and t- going beyond that, if you go over to the United States on Fox News, it's, it's almost like you know Fox News is the official you know, media wing mm. of the Republican mm. Party. Um, and and I, I don't think it's a bad thing that, you know, our people, social Democrats, are on television and every now and then go, well, that's pretty shit what Labor's done there. Um, and here's the reasons why. But sometimes it gets frustrating because on the other side they're goddamn so disciplined and they do not lay a glove on their own people. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to that idea of, well, what are you on TV for? Are you on TV to prosecute a very particular case, which is a party line? Or are you on TV to unpack and unpick and Mm. discuss a little bit more. Um, I tend to think the latter, but I do think in terms of, you know, showing a united front, perhaps the right are a little better at that and a little more coordinated at that. But I... I'd, I'd prefer to see them move further towards, towards what we're doing rather than us move the other way. I think it's important that the progressive left is able to have conversations with itself and able to be mature enough to say we're not going to agree all the time and that doesn't make us any less united as a broader movement, um, yeah. that we can be really effective and have some disagreements about the best way to do something because that broad set of values that underpins what we do stays the same. Yeah. Let's uh, turn uh, our attention to gender equality, and in particular, I want to talk about the pay gap. Uh, earlier this week, the United States women's uh, soccer or football team uh, won the World Cup and against uh, the Netherlands in France, and each player on that winning side earned $110,000 US uh, for winning that tournament. So that includes all the payments they got from playing all the way through, so match payments all the way through to then actually winning the you know the ultimate prize in in women's football. Compare that to the US team that didn't make last year's World Cup. Um, if they had done so, they would have earned that amount just by playing each game in the in the uh, in the early rounds of the tournament. So the 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 pay gap is a great example here in in this in uh, the comparison between these two footballing teams. Also, it's good to remember that the women's team actually generates more revenue than the men's team does back home in the US, um, and it has brought up this whole issue about um, pay inequity between men and women. Um, the US women's team have really been quite um, vocal about it as well for a long period of time. I just want to get your thoughts on it, uh, on just the very top line when you read all about that. What are your thoughts about pay, pay inequity that's happening in not just sport but across a whole varied um, parts of uh, industries? I think sport is a really good example and a really high-profile example for us to point to where we still see really vast inequalities when it comes to how men are paid and how women are paid. And that comes, you know, down to old historic biases about what's more valuable, uh, about what people care about and what people want to watch. The very fact that, I don't know if you caught your language there, you actually said um, when you were talking about the men's team, you didn't say the men's team, you said the US team. There you go. Because we still assume that the men's game is the primary game and the women's game is a nice to have add-on and given that women's sport is relatively new as a professionalized industry with it's understandable that a lot of us still talk that way but the fact that these women are working so hard what they do is amazing that they are at the absolute top of their game and the fact that here in Australia for a whole bunch of sports for example a lot of those women have another full-time job Mm. Most of the Australian women's netball team who are, other than the Silver Ferns, other than the Kiwis, unquestionably the best in the world, a whole bunch of them work full-time doing something else and their parents. So they've got a whole lot of other stuff going on and they've got to squish it in around the edges because we just don't take women's sport as seriously. I actually think sport is a separate 
case to more generally uh, when we look at um, the gender pay gap because in sport, A, it's still so stark uh, and B, it's so integrally linked with advertising and sponsorship. Yeah. And I think there's a um, there's something playing in there at a broader level in terms of what brands value and what people will watch. And I think we've got some work to do there. But here in Australia, I'm really buoyed by how we're going. The AFLW are really pushing ahead, I think, in trying to prove that the women's game should be valued in the same way that the men's game is. Now, that's a long way off, but considering how new that league is, we're starting to get somewhere. Tennis is a great example of, I think, where we've pretty much achieved it. Uh, We've gotten to a point now where the women's prize money is equal at the Australian Open, for example, uh, to the men's, and we are starting to take that more seriously. And yet, you see, I think it's Channel 7 who's running the tennis at the moment. Uh, the other night, they had Nick Kyrgios or they had Ash Barty's match and they got to choose which one they put on and we all know which one they picked, despite the fact our girl was number one in the world when she was going into that match. So is sport one of the worst examples of... I mean, you're talking about some of the positivities that are happening, certainly around um, um, the domestic codes. Uh, and I think the Matildas are in, uh, one of the better... In terms of wage parity, they're one of the, they're one of the better examples better. of... Better. Uh, compared to... <laughs> well, I remember I was... Um, I think when we had a podcast last year or the year before for, um, for Pot on the Hill, I didn't do the episode, but I did a bit of research. For, I think it was Nicola was doing an episode. Um, and I actually just went back and actually looked at the, the, the wage gaps between um, A-League players um, and um, AFLW players and a whole bunch of other women's um, professional codes or semi-professional codes, and it seemed like the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement for the, um, the women's uh, A-League, which I think is the W-League, um, had made major leaps and bounds compared to the rest. Yeah, and that's because the Players Association, right? Good old unionism yeah, right. has helped those women along when it comes to how they're being paid compared to the men. Uh, but it's still a long way from parity. I, I, a sport is different, I suppose, because you actually do see a really obvious uh, reading of the gender pay gap. And by that, what I mean is that for a lot of us who are working in different industries now outside of professional sport, for a lot of us, we'll go to work each day and go, hey, my name's Jane and John's sitting beside me and we get paid the same amount for doing the same job. What are you talking about with the gender pay gap? So with sport, it can be more simple to point to where the problems are and simple to understand because you can see that woman gets $100,000 for winning the whole tournament and that bloke gets that for playing in the first round and achieving nothing and he could have lost his team could have lost 10 zip in every game and he still gets paid that Um, whereas in other industries it becomes more complex to explain and I think for the progressive movement while it's good that we have closed that obvious gender pay gap when it comes to those dollar figure comparisons on pay packets a lot of the time in terms of the same pay for the same work there is a complexity in the kind of work that attracts the kind of pay and I think often progressives struggle to explain that in a way that's compelling and that leads to this burgeoning sort of group who go ah that's not a thing that's not real everyone's equal now what are you talking about and I think that's really dangerous. Um, So let's just Move away from professional sport and then into uh, the more traditional workplaces. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, and you picked me up before, and I'm glad you did that. Keep picking me up throughout this whole episode because I'm going to make a lot of mistakes here. But um, the 1984 Sex Discrimination Act that was brought in under the Hawke government sought to introduce... Equal weight, pay. Equal yep. pay. Um, even though that is now in there as law, there is still a wage gap because of a whole host of other reasons... What are those institutional reasons that are creating that? Yeah. So I think it was Justice Mary Gordon, who was the first woman on the High Court in Australia, said we got pay equality and then we got it again and then we got it again and we still don't have it. Mm. This is what that's about. So, yes, there is legislation that makes it uh, inappropriate and illegal and there are ramifications for businesses that pay men and women who do the same job different amounts. Yet we still have a pay gap in this company country of around between 15 and 16 percent and it's important to note that that pay gap is before you take account of things like bonuses and things where people are taking their pay in other forms for example as shares Uh, once you once you take account for all of those bits and pieces as well you get to a gap of more like 23 percent so it's actually a lot bigger than we we like to think it is so if you'll indulge me for a moment and The best way, I think, to think about the pay gap in Australia is to think about a house. I'm a very visual person, so this helps me. So we tend to talk about the top of the house all the time in the media. 
and the corporate kind of discussion is around that glass ceiling. And it's the fact that when we get to the very top of most workplaces, they're dominated by men. It's men who tend to dominate on corporate boards. It's men who dominate amongst CEOs. Everyone likes to pull out that old fact that amongst the top 200 ASX companies, there are more CEOs named Andrew than there are women at the moment. And uh, that is updated from about 18 months ago when it was John. So, well, there's progress. Bravo, right Andrews. <laughs> bravo, everyone. Um, so at the top there, you've got men getting to the very top of workplaces more than women. So overall are going to be taking home bigger pay packets. Then we've got what the labour movement, I think, is really good at talking about uh, and the people who we know we need to stick by as a progressive movement because otherwise their voices don't get heard. So if we think about our house analogy, talked about the roof, that's about the people who are on the floor and it's a sticky floor. So women who go into low-skilled, entry-level jobs, often in casual roles and struggle to get off that floor. They're usually part-time. They're the ones most likely to be hu- cut... Uh, sorry. They're the ones most likely to be hit by cuts to penalty rates, for example, and that floor is really hard to bounce off, particularly when you've got a family, particularly when you don't have the time to go out and get more skills and you're not given the opportunity that men are. So women are often dominant on that sort of bottom of our house. And then there's the most complex part, which is the walls of the house. And that's where it gets hard to distinguish where this pay gap is coming about. But in Australia, it's a really big problem. We have one of the most gender diverse-less workforces in the world. So we're really gender segregated. So there are walls between industries. So most Australians will never work in a workplace or a workforce or industry that is gender equal. Most of us work in an industry that is dominated by men or dominated by women. So, for example, I think we can all come up with a bunch of them. Men tend to dominate the financial industries. Men dominate in engineering or IT. Men dominate in some of the trades, plumbing, for example, building. Women also dominate in some trades. Hairdressing is a really good example. Women dominate the caring professions, aged care, nursing. Women are the majority of teachers. So, when we look at those sets of industries, the industries that are dominated by men tend to be paid more. And the industries that are dominated by women tend to be paid less. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the industries that are dominated by women and are trying to attract more people to their workforce look at things that will attract the kind of workforce they've got. So they are the kind of workplaces that say, right, we need to be more flexible. We need to offer paid parental leave. We need to be making it easier for women who are transitioning in and out of the workforce around kids. And those industries dominated by men don't have to do that so much because they just don't have many women working in them. On top of that, the people at the bottom in the low-paid roles in those male-dominated industries tend to be women. Women tend to be in lower and middle management if they are in finance or engineering or whatever it is. And on the other side, if you think about those caring industries, if you go to the top of them, heads of nursing staff more likely to be men, principals of schools more likely to be men. So it's all these little different bits and pieces that add up together to make that, in, real, in a real sense, 22 23% pay gap. And explaining that in a soundbite is really hard. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible house you've just painted there. Yeah, it's not a nice house. It's not a pretty house, is it? So, wh- I mean, where do we go to try and fix that house? What, what, is, what, has been, what, what things have been done to mix those industries up? What, can you point to examples of industries where there is starting to be change and the balance is starting to get corrected? Yeah, we have looked at a few different things and different um, industries have tried really hard uh, and some have failed and some haven't. Uh, There's some work being done, I think, part of... Sorry, let me say that again. I think part of the problem is that we tend to focus on the ceiling and we focus on the ceiling to the exclusion of the rest of it. And it gets written up in the media all the time. Oh, and and look, I I am absolutely one of those at fault. I point to myself as much as other colleagues in the media. We love talking about the number of women CEOs, women in high profile roles, the number of women on boards. You know, it's the obsession with Julia Gillard as the first woman prime minister because, oh, she's the first. It's exciting and new and newsworthy. Is it because maybe some women think, or probably men and women that are in support of reducing this pay gap have said if we get women into positions of leadership they can affect change from leadership yeah and you know what that kind of a a, is similar to trickle down (laughs) does that sound familiar You, you 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 hope that if you get one woman to the top 
then her, she sort of acts as this shining star. But what happens, I think, is you get that one woman to the top, she's often treated terribly, she has an incredibly harsh spotlight on her that means if she makes even the slightest error, instead of someone saying, hey, maybe that individual woman wasn't quite right for the job, everyone goes, oh, well, we've had a woman one, better not have another woman one again because they weren't very good. Yeah, we tried that. And she gets tarred with the brush of, you know, the, the whole gender gets tarred with the brush of a single person who probably wasn't that well supported. Also, executives will tend to point to that woman and say, okay, it's your job to mentor all the young women. It's your job to help bring more women up the chain. And usually that woman will put a lot of work into those sorts of things. But at the same time, one person can't do everything and also be good at her job. Mm. I'd like to see a whole bunch of more men at the top of chains go, hey, how can I be better? How can I be a better mentor to young women? How can I be pushing equality as well? Um, so let me go back to my original question, which was how do we try and fix that house? Give me some examples of where we're finding that there is a balance starting to be struck in industries. Well, I think if you if you start right at home in terms of the sorts of areas your podcast looks at, we've done really well in political parties. Well, in one in particular. Quotas have really worked and served the Australian Labor Party well. Um, it certainly hasn't eliminated all problems. I think there are still some massive gender problems facing the ALP. But if you look at the numbers of women in parliament, I'm not actually sure what the stats are for the new parliament, uh, but they're usually upwards of 40%, um, getting close to 50%. I think if Labor had won this election, they would have gone close to 50%. And that's a remarkable achievement in a short period of time. And that does start to change the culture of the place because you've got women in there who bring their own individual experience and life experience. And it means they look at things slightly different. Um, in the same way that people of colour will look at the world slightly differently because of their particular experience or a person with a disability. When we talk about these intersections and when we talk about disadvantaged or minority groups, often I think it can feel very token and quick. But once you've got a decent number of people who share a common experience in the place, they will make way for more people like them because they can start to change it because they're thinking about that all the time. Because I think often when you've got a whole group of men, they're not sitting there talking about how can we exclude the women. Well, maybe they are sometimes. But I think most of the time it's just that you're living life the way that you always have and you watch out for problems that you've seen and you've experienced in your life and you haven't experienced the disadvantage of gender. And so it's not front of mind all the time, so you're not acting on it. Uh, absolutely. Um, in uh, my time as a, a party official for the six and a half years I worked at the Victorian branch, I uh, went on a journey and was and benefited from the experiences I had with uh, women who I was working around with on a daily basis and they would sit me down and say, Stephen, this is how you need to look at it. This is the perspective that we're coming from. Um, and here are the things that we suggest you can do to make change. And I was, I think I was lucky in that in that respect because field tends to be... I, I don't think it was originally, but certainly I, I wanted to ensure that our organisers, that we had balance, sort of gender balance yeah. um, with our paid field staff. Because I think one area you said that the Labor Party has done very well when it comes to um, uh, gender balance is our elected um, public office holders, but our party Yeah, officials, not so in other areas. No. Fair. Um, and I can only control what I can control in one of the areas was I, you know, would employ, um, you know, between 20 and 30 field staff every election campaign. So we strove to try and make sure that we employed 50-50 um, um, based on, um, you know, we never, there was no, there's no rules in the party in Victoria that, um, f that field staff or staff in general have to be 50-50. We just set about saying, well, this is a goal that we won't publicise, but let's aim quietly about achieving that. And over the six and a half years, you know, we did do that. And now um, all the leadership positions within field and the Victorian branch anyway are led by women. Um, but I wouldn't have achieved that or I wouldn't have been able to do that if it hadn't been brought to my attention in the first place mm. by, by women. In fact, it was an American that did that, Kate Scully. Yeah, interesting. Um, was the one who said, Stephen, we need to address this because I've just arrived from the United States and I look around and I just see a lot of blokes in this campaign. Mm. And I think part of it is being open to having that conversation, right? I think we are in, in the world of Twitter. Uh, we are very much in the depths of a call-out culture and media is a huge part of that problem, for sure, mm. uh, where we like to bring someone down. We like to say, you got it wrong, you did this, and we like to tear someone down with it. Um, rather than saying, none of us has got this stuff perfect, 
all of us is learning a new language and a new way of behaving in the workplace and a new way of discussing these kinds of issues. And sometimes we are going to get the language wrong and sometimes we are going to say something that's not quite right. And it's much better that we're able to talk about that and improve rather than yell it out, be accusatory, and then on the other side get defensive and put our walls up. Um, I try really hard if I get called out on social media for saying something wrong or um, marginalising a particular group or not thinking of the experience of a particular um, uh, group of people, my immediate response is always, oh, shut up, that's wrong, and I want to push back because I like to be right and I don't like the criticism and I try really hard to sit with it and go, hold on, is there some truth in here? Is the reason I'm getting defensive because I know there's a kernel of truth in here and what can I learn from this? And I would rather be called out and learn from it than go about my whole life being discriminatory or not thinking about someone's experience. One of the best... um, Lines I ever heard from this was from a Russian author called uh, Masha Gessen. And Masha said every time that they are in a room where they feel like they really belong, like loving, you know that moment where you're like, I am with my people, this is awesome, I'm top of the world right now, take a moment to go, who doesn't belong in this room? And is that something that needs to be addressed? Mm. The debate about um, the pay gap uh, and gender equality... um, I was t- talking to you before we started recording the article that was in The Guardian today that was talking about um, the disparity in some of the more, um, to use your analogy, in the roof of this house. Yeah. Um, they were talking about a lot of the government departments, DFAT, um, ASIO, intelligence services, um, hardly any women in leadership positions employed mm. there, um, hardly any women... Um, even in general, they look at the, the general population of, that, of their staff um, and saying that obviously we need to overcome that. And as I'm reading that, I'm going, okay, that's true. That's great. This, this, this report's been mm. done and that something should now be um, – there should be some next steps to, to address this. Mm. But then I sort of think about um, um, women in regional areas, women from marginal – sorry, from migrant backgrounds. Um, when they read that, they might read that and go, oh, that's great, but that's got absolutely nothing to do with me. Yeah. How am I going to bring about change in my own community or in my own workplace at, you know, at, at Target in um, Warren Ponds? Yeah. Um, how do we bring those people, those women, into that conversation and give them the tools to bring about change? We have to talk about them. <laughs> they have to be part of the conversation. I think, um, as we mentioned before, part of the problem is the media storytelling, but also the storytelling a lot of us engage with is about what's happening to women at the very top and discrimination against women at the very top of their professions. And that is relevant and that is important and that is worthy of addressing, but not to the exclusion of everyone else. And certainly it shouldn't be the majority thing that we're focused on. I want to be having conversations in schools about why it is that this school has never had a woman principal and yet we have a majority of women teachers in, in a huge degree, often 90%. And what is it that on a day-to-day level means that you don't take that extra opportunity or you can't step up to the next thing? What's stopping you? What's holding you back? What do we need to change? And often this stuff is really not just about work. what's happening in workplaces. It's about those cultural norms playing out at home as well. And I think part of it is we need to get better at telling the story when it comes to gender equality Um, As campaigners, we need to get better at talking about how integrated that story is through the life cycle of a woman. So Australian women, for example, women and girls are killing it in Australia in school education, killing it in university education and in TAFE education, actually. Huge results, good results, generally, on average, better than the blokes. Mm. But something happens when they move from the schooling environment to the workplace environment. Now... Having said that, I think there's probably a conversation that we need to have about boys in schools and perhaps we're not serving boys as well in schools. But setting that aside, when women get to workplaces... We do okay. <laughs> <laughs> when women get to workplaces, what is happening? Because the ABS data that came out um, just recently showed that the average Australian woman's salary peaks at 31. 31! Like, yeah. And I don't think there's any... Um, surprise in that number when you think about the average age that an Australian woman has her first child is the age of 30 and that's it that's when your salary stops moving 
because we have these biases, these really entrenched biases in workplaces that say when a woman has a child, work is no longer her focus anymore and she's probably not going to be up for those promotions or the next opportunity or the next step. That's our, that's our assumption, our unconscious bias. And with men, we do the opposite. We go, oh, he's a father now, he's responsible, he's settled down, he needs the money, he's raising a family. It's the same experience that these two individuals have gone through and yet one makes someone more employable and one makes them less employable. And I think the hard part of that conversation is saying, well, the stereotype's probably got some truth in it and that's because that woman has just, by having a child, accepted a huge amount of unpaid labour in the home and that bloke necess- hasn't necessarily accepted the same amount. Do you think our politicians are doing enough in that space to legislate um, to support women in, mm. in these challenges they're overcoming? Kamala Harris, the Democratic candidate for the, um, for the presidential nomination yeah. for the primaries, has come out and um, made a bunch of policy announcements mm. around about fining um, workplaces that are practising discrimination and a whole bunch of new things. And she's come for a bit of criticism from all parts of the, the, the debate. Are we doing enough here in Australia from, our, from, a, from a political standpoint? Uh, and I'm not worried about the Tories. I'm talking more about us, um, Social Democrats, um, in supporting... Because, you know, the, 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 the workforce is constantly changing. Um, we had uh, Brett Gale on a couple of weeks ago talking about, um, you know, the challenges. And even last week, Liam O'Brien was talking about, you know, the challenges that unions are facing today because of the way that we communicate, the way that the workforces are changing fundamentally with the gig economy and how unions yeah, have to adapt. absolutely. How are women supposed to adapt to all of these fundamental changes? Is our legislation up to date in order to bring in that kind of support? Is that, like, do we need to update our legislation for support in trying to bring bridge that gap? I, I think it's a huge challenge facing the union movement and the progressive movement is in is around the changing nature of work and particularly how that impacts women who make up the majority of union members these days. Women who are going to be adversely affected by that gig economy, women whose superannuation is going to be affected. That is already, you know, roughly just above half what men's are uh, when we get to retirement age. You know, there are some huge questions here in how, as our economy reshapes and as our way of working reshapes, what that means for already disadvantaged groups. And that's not just women. That goes more, more broadly than that. It's just my specialty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually, what I'd like to see us doing from a political standpoint, from a legislative standpoint, is less of the stick and more of the carrot. I think sometimes those discrimination points can be really hard uh, to find and touch on beyond what we've already got. And Australia does have a good system, uh, I think, when it comes to uh, workplace harassment uh, and dealing with uh, that at the more serious levels. But most people don't want to end up in a court or at the Human Rights Commission to deal with the disputes that they're having in a workplace that are of that nature. They want to deal with that discrimination at an earlier stage. And I think that's where we need to focus our our efforts. And in terms of that carrot perspective, it's about moving to a workforce and a society that values what has traditionally been feminine work as work and values that work as something that is worthy and important for every individual. Um, I'm focusing on families because that's where we see the biggest inequalities. I'd love to see Australia looking at policies that make childcare not just more affordable, but that look at childcare as part of the schooling system and an extension of the schooling system, that look at ways you can use paid parental leave payments, not just as a payment to the family, but as a payment that we can use to start to move the the dial on how men are involved with their children's lives. So that in same-sex couples, for example, we start to encourage uh, two-parent families to take leave equally. At the moment, I think it's something like 3% of those who take up paid parental leave are men. It's some whopping majority. It's women taking that payment. So while it's an important payment, and I think it's a great reform that uh, the Rudd and Gillard governments put in place, paid parental leave is really key. But if we're always paying it to women, we're further entrenching the same system and the same stereotypes. And also not giving that child the benefit of spending time with both parents. Um, 
we see so many men get towards retirement age and the end of their lives and the primary thing they always say is, I wish I'd had more time with my family. Why aren't we making that possible? Is it because there's a cultural norm that blokes just don't want to do that or don't do that or don't feel that they can do that? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think it's more complex than that, though. I think if you've got a pay gap for most um, heterosexual couples, if that pay gap applies as it does at a broad average in your family and you sit down and go, okay, so she physically had to have the baby and then often for women she'll be the one feeding the baby in those early months, why not continue that? And also, if he earned more... Whose salary are you going to sacrifice? Whose salary is it easier to let go? Um, I'd really love someone in Australia to crunch the numbers, actually, the data on um, couples where it's a man and a woman and they have a baby and the woman earned more previously. Yeah, that, that how quickly they... they um, and how they arranged their, their childcare and how quickly she went back to work. I'd be really interested in that. Uh, because I think while women earn less... Um, we're going to continue to have a problem. And while childcare is something where most couples weigh up against the lower income earner's salary or the primary carer's salary, like is it worth her going back to work because the cost of childcare is so much rather than viewing the cost of childcare as something that's shared across both people's salaries and both people's earnings? There's a problem with the way we, we think about this stuff and the way we conceive of this stuff. And some of that can be moved... Um, through legislation and some of it is I think about deep cultural norms that are about more than what government can do. I was reading uh, the report by the Victorian government into this gender equality strategy I think it's called Safe and Strong and the it found the following dot points that I thought was interesting. On average girls receive I was talking about um, the, the, the imbalance that exists in the home yep. at, at an early age. Uh, so young girls receive 11% less pocket money than mm-hmm. boys. Uh, children quickly define jobs and activities as specific to boys or girls. Uh, and boys receive eight times more attention in the classroom than girls. And now you're a parent. Um, I'm just wondering, give us some examples how... And you've got a young boy. Yeah, I've got a little boy. Uh, how have you set tried to change the the cultural norms yeah. before you sent him off into the... I'm failing miserably. Like, okay, let's right. start with that point, right? Like, this is... We are all a work in progress on this stuff. We're talking about deeply held beliefs that we all have. We've all grown up in a sexist society. And I think part of the conversation that can be problematic is that we assume sexism always comes from men. It, it doesn't. Women can be sexist too. Um, and you can be sexist against your own gender. Absolutely. You can experience sexist feelings and sexist thoughts against yourself that hold you back. Uh, I don't think we unpack that enough. We do a lot more finger-pointing and going, hey, blokes, you've got to fix things, as opposed to saying, no, 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 we've all got a problem in this space. Because we like fixing things. I'm guilty of that all the time. As soon as I hear (laughs) a problem, I'm like, well, how do I fix that? What do I do? What's the pathway to get... Tell me how. Yeah. We'll fix that tomorrow. Uh, Yeah, is there a guy I can call? Yeah. Yeah. I'm living my life through a Nick Hornby book, basically. That's what's happening. (laughs) You know, there's actually... The Harvard Business School has an implicit bias test. There's a race one, a sex one. There's probably a few others, I imagine. Um, I did the sexism one and I am 69% sexist. (laughs) And I literally talk about this for a living. So, you know, everyone's sexist. So don't be too hard on yourself, but just try and fix it. And in the home, we we try really hard, my husband and I, but it is um, harder than I thought it would be. It's an ongoing conversation I think is the first one when it comes to gender equality in our house I thought it was something we'd talk about once and we'd just agree to be equal and that would be done um, it's not it's a, as our son's needs change as his schooling changes as our jobs change as our health changes as things move around everything has to be rejigged and it's so easy if you don't think about it actively just to fall back on gender stereotypes that you see around you and you've grown up with uh, with my son I work really hard on uh, practicing gender equal activity in front of him uh, so I make sure that despite the fact my husband is not the best cook that my husband is seen cooking that my husband that my son sees my husband folding laundry and putting stuff on the washing line and that he's part of that too that he's expected to be doing more feminized tasks uh, we talk about how exciting the jobs might be he might have when he grows up but we also talk about would you like to be an uncle would you like to be a daddy one day these caring roles that men have in our society that for some reason we never talk about aspiring to be uh 
you know, and they don't have to be as a parent. They can be any kind of caring role. Um, I hope he's caring for me one day. Uh, but this stuff is hard and it's hard to talk about because it's so prevalent. It is everywhere. It is in every kid's book you open. It's in every TV show you put on the TVs. There's this show I hate at the moment on ABC Kids called Paw Patrol, which has all these dogs who have jobs. And they all have these really exciting, awesome jobs, except the girl who just does nothing. Recently, she's been allowed to fly the helicopter, which is good. Uh, but I can't stand that show. I can't have it on the television because for him, that all is set as normal. And kids see the world as how things are, as how things should be. One of the ones I noticed that uh, about a year ago that I've made a really conscious effort to change is that in our family, both my husband and I can drive and we drive our son around. But when my husband and I get in the car together, he always drives. And that was never a conversation. We never sat down and said, who is the better driver in our relationship? <laughs> I think it's... And to be honest, if we had that conversation, I would argue I am the better driver. I am also very bad at navigation, very bad at directions. So I should not be in the passenger seat doing the navigation. That's a terrible job for me to have. I should be driving. Absolutely. And yet we just fell into that. And I, I don't know why we did it, it is th whether it was looking at our parents or looking at people around us or just an assumption. But for a little kid, for a two- or three-year-old who is clocking every little part of his world, that's just one of 10,000 things he clocked today where he goes, hmm, driving's an important thing grown-ups do. Mummy can do it, Daddy can do it, I can't do it, but when you get to choose, Daddy does it. Yeah. And it sends a message. And when he gets 10,000 of those messages a day, it paints a picture for him. You uh, mentioned to me beforehand, and I said to you I, in our correspondence, I was a privileged white male and I wasn't even aware of this, but this pushback uh, from men uh, against the advancement of, of gender mm. equality um, and women's rights. Um, give us an example of where that is happening right now. Um, where is it, how is this manifested from blokes? Um, is it as simple as like, so the remarks that, the alleged marks, remarks, I should say, that John Secker had said about Rosie Batty. Um, is it more than that? Is it stuff that's just coming up in the media all the time? Is it stuff that's on social media? Where, where is this, 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 this centred, this pushback? And what does it look like? I think there is a growing sense amongst some segments of the community, and it's not just men, um, hashtag not all men, uh, where it's kind of there's a view that this gender equality business has gone, gone far enough. Right and that women are now trying to push to a point that is beyond equality. And I think it tends to come from a more simplistic understanding of what equality is. Um, but I'll put it this way. If we can take gender out of it for a minute and we can just talk about any kind of disadvantage, whether we're talking about what we used to call class, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about sexual orientation or disability, whatever it might be. If you have always been part of the privileged group, then you kind of see what you look around at every day. If you haven't been educated on it and you haven't explored it, you just see the world as equal, mm. right? If you're part of the privileged group, you go, the status quo is good, right? That's equal. Everyone has a crack. We have a go. And you don't really examine your own privilege within that. Now, if that's how you've always approached the world and you aren't as educated or open to the discussions about whether things need to change as you are, then suddenly actual equality doesn't look like equality to you. Actual equality looks like oppression because actual equality involves you giving up something and you having less capacity to do what you like and less capacity to be competitive in a world that is very competitive. Um, when those advantages and privileges are taken away from you, it looks oppressive and you don't like it and you push back against it. And I think that's something we're starting to see now and I think it's not just in gender, I think we're seeing it in race um, I think that's been a big part of what's happening with the political shifts in the United States. I think you've got a lot of uh, men who have dominated in... Sorry, men of the middle class who've dominated in industries and being able to work and in advantages in life and are seeing those advantages being taken away in under the guise of equality and they're going, hey, hey, hold on a second, hold on a second, this doesn't sound good for me because all of a sudden their son who's just like them, life looks less good for them. And I think most of us are invested in the idea that life should be better for the generation that comes after us. 
So from a campaign perspective, if I look, look at those challenges that you've presented and what made me think about that was in, in the United States is that, yes, there is a section of the community in the US that, um, that have been defined by the left media as, um, and that is the sort of the middle class um, flyover state male that voted Trump. Uh, and I think there's a whole bunch of problems with that statement in itself because I don't actually completely agree with that. But, but th- that group there, there certainly is evidence to suggest that a number of those voters in, in those Rust Belt states had voted for Obama in, in two elections and then either didn't turn up for, for Hillary or actually voted for Trump. Yeah. Hence giving us this result. Um, and everyone's blaming them or they're all putting their hand up and saying, I'm feeling like I'm excluded. This country's completely changed. That's why I voted for Trump because he's going to make it great again or he's going to go back to the status quo of mm. how I once remembered mm. it. Um, and there is a debate in the Demo- or within the left in the United States about, well, the, fun- the, the demographics of our country are changing. Stuff them. We don't need them. They don't need to be a part of our coalition. Mm. But there's an argument out there that, no, no, we need to bring them back into the tent. Mm. Um, I'm always very much of a view that we need to... Centre-left coalitions need to be as big as possible yeah. um, to be successful. So we need to bring people with us. How does um, the how does feminism reach out to those blokes that at the moment are actually pushing back and saying mm. to them, "Hey, actually, no, we're not having a crack at you. Mm. Um, we need you with us yeah. in this quest for us all to experience genuine yeah. equality." I think, and this is something that a, a lot of Um, comrades of mine in the feminist movement would disagree with. Um, But I think we need to get better at talking about the benefits of gender gender equality for everyone. Um, Not focusing on the benefits only for men or only for women or for the next generation, but talking about the benefits for everyone. Because I think we have... While I think the focus should be on women and the advancement of women, I'm also a pragmatist. And I think if we're going to take people with us at this more difficult stage of mounting the arguments that we're making, where inequality is less obviously apparent, even though it's just as insidious, we need to be able to have those conversations. And I think that's talking about, you know, that's talking to the... Oh, gosh, see, as soon as I do this, I'm going to start using all these horrible clichés, but talking to the 65-year-old straight white bloke who worked in a really rough physical industry his whole life where he was working long hours and he didn't get a lot of time with his kids and he gets to the end of he gets to retirement age he'd love to keep working a bit longer because it's not going to be a comfortable retirement he's got 30 years ahead of him but physically can't keep doing the job so he retires and feels he's not useful Mm. and feels like you know watches his wife start getting really involved with grandkids and goes but I don't know how to do that stuff because I didn't do that stuff before and I'd kind of like to but I don't know how and I'm not good at that stuff but I can't do what I used to be good at and I don't know who I am anymore and I don't know how to define myself in a world where I don't have that physical labour that I used to get paid for that was my benefit to my family and my way of supporting them. I think it's about talking to that person and saying for the next generation we need to make sure that enjoyment and fulfilment and work are a broader idea than what they were for you because that's not fair. Yeah, it is interesting that. Um, Because earlier on you said something that that triggered my mind. You said we need to share, we need to talk about our our story. Um, And one thing that is important in grassroots organising is, and we train all of our organisers, we train all of our volunteers in their story of self, which is a part of this broader public narrative that Mm. Marshall Ganser, lecturer at Harvard University, devised. Um, the story of self, us, and now. And the story of us is those shared experiences and shared values. Mm. And that's something I think sometimes in politics and in campaigning in general, we forget to do that. We forget to talk about... Because in, in a story, there is, a, as you know, there is a pragmatist and there is an antagonist. And we want everyone on our side to be the protagonists together. Um, so the aim is, in a, in a political context, you know, the Labor candidate and the local community are the protagonists in the story of us and the antagonists are conservatives. But in this gender equality conversation, there is no reason why the story of us cannot just be men and women who share similar experiences or and share values and working to, together to 
fixing the story of now. The story of now yeah. is the challenge that exists in terms of gender equality. And fixing I that. would like to see us have a gender equality conversation about suicide and the fact that our suicide rates are dominated by men and generally straight men. And that is a gender question. That is a gender equality question, absolutely, because of the way we socialise and raise men, that you have to be strong, that you can't cry, that you can't talk about your feelings, that you are responsible for holding your family together, for being a provider, for being this very narrow, tiny definition of masculinity. And if you don't fit into that, then you are worthless. And I think it's that conversation and that narrative which leaves men who sit anywhere outside of that tiny, teeny little box of masculinity going, well, where the hell do I fit? Mm. And I'm not right and I'm not good enough and there's something wrong with me and is my life worth living? Because I don't fit this very narrow stereotype of what it is to be an Australian bloke. Um, Or I have comfortably fit that stereotype for a very long time but I don't anymore. And there's this bullshit um, competition that I sometimes... The worst place to do to observe this is on social media. But whenever... Like the couple of times when Daniel Andrews has put a post up about um, family violence or, you know, just some really good positive stuff um, and calling stuff out. Yeah. And then you read the comments and then then all of a sudden you get the comments from the blokes. Yeah. Saying, but men are dying of suicide and... Uh, it's yeah. not a competition. And at no point did Daniel Andrews say in his post, I don't care that men are dying of suicide. Yeah, no, yeah. Just because I'm talking about this important issue today doesn't mean I think other issues are less important. And, I mean, my, my work is about gender equality. It's the main focus of what I do. That's not to say I don't think any other issue is just as important, if not more important. You know, when I sit down with friends who are climate scientists, I would argue that one, that particular problem, more important than any of the others put together. Uh, But it's not where I'm making my contribution because it's not where I think my talents can be best used. I'm talking about something else that I think is important. Mm. But, yeah, this sort of binary approach that we have that if you highlight one issue that's facing one gender, that therefore you think everything else is unimportant. It's just pathetic. Just want to talk about the media for a moment um, because not... I'm sorry, we're awful. Yeah. Well, no, I'm interested in getting your take because you know, your 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 you're a social commentator on this issue, mm. but in order to do that, you have to inhabit this media space. Yeah. And so therefore, you would observe uh, the uh, the media through that prism. Where, yeah. Where, where, what, have, what's been, what, what are your reflections on how the media are going in terms of overcoming uh, or trying to bridge this gap and inequality that exists? Because, you know, there's still... Women are still playing certain types of roles um, within the media mm. um, and not getting into... Other, talk about the house. If the media was a house, then there's certain you know, rooms <laughs> that women are in and there are other rooms that I'll be in. Yep. I'd be, I'm just, there I'm aren't just, many women executives of TV companies. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I just, I'm keen to get your sense and your experiences um, yeah. in there. Um, I have worked in the media in a bunch of different roles, including editing websites and uh, as well as a columnist. And watching the media up close, we've definitely got to get our own house in order. I think some media organisations are doing that better than others. I think the media also... Name and shame. Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> you know that I work for one of them. Uh, but, I, I look, I think the ABC is doing a brilliant brilliant job and I I know we all have our view on the ABC and how well they're doing on everything and we expect perfection from them but I think the thing that's impressive about the ABC is their willingness to address the problem and their willingness to accept when they have a problem and to self-examine and I think that's really important Um, when the ABC got the data back which was done through an internal study that told them that on Q&A uh, men panellists were getting way more airtime than women panellists. Uh, there was a really important mea culpa from Tony Jones where he went, I didn't know I did that. <laughs> you know, I thought I was being really fair and I've always set out to be really fair and now the data is telling me I'm, I'm not, so I have to f- fix it. Yep. Uh, and I have actually an ongoing conversation with the EP at Q&A where she calls all the time and says, I can't find enough young women to come on the program. Give me more names, more names. Uh, because they're trying to fix it. They're, try- they're trying to be more equal. And I think that's really impressive. And they're trying to do that across the board. And do they fail sometimes? Yes. Uh, but they are actively trying. I think in the commercial media, 
profit still outweighs actively trying by a very long way. And unfortunately, in the um, commercial media, we try things and they fail very quickly. We let them fail very quickly. We don't give them the time we used to. Uh, let me give you an example. Channel 10, when they launched the project, the project didn't rate very well for over 12 months. And even the hosts of that show will say they didn't find their groove for close to a year. Mm. It, it takes time to launch a new panel show and make it work. But they were given that time to find it, make it work, and now it is absolutely the star of the Channel 10 stable and makes them great money in a lot of ways. And um, So the idea that they would axe that show and that that would have been considered in its early days is crazy, mm. right? Yet you've seen uh, the new footy show be uh, launched recently and get canned very, very quickly. And I thought it was an impressive show in that it had a woman, it had a person with a disability as a host, you had a new group. I think they got five episodes, canned it, because not enough people watching. Now, it's a new show. It, it takes time. They were trying to do a new thing. They were trying to have a new way of approaching it. That takes time to build because the old audience isn't necessarily going to like new. So I think in the media we've got a lot of uh, self-reflection to do. I think we can definitely challenge some of our own biases about what makes money and what is commercially successful. Um, but I would love to see audiences being more vocal and more demanding in terms of what they want because ultimately uh, media companies will make decisions very much based around who's buying and who's watching and who's reading. Yeah, uh, yeah that's an interesting point there. Are there organisations out there that are getting organised and running campaigns that are putting pressure on the, uh, on the hip pocket of um, TV execs? Like, for example, uh, the Bill O'Reilly program in, in, uh, on Fox News in the US, uh, after he'd said a whole bunch of um, racist statements, an organisation called Colour, uh, Colour, for, sorry, Colour of Change ran an online campaign where they lobbied the, uh, a number of the advertiser sponsors for his program to say, um, you can't sponsor this program anymore because this is outrageous. Yeah. Um, a, lot of, a number of your um, customers are African-American and we're going to, if you don't do something about this, we're going to get them to boycott your products. Mm. And so, you know, they had leverage over them. They put pressure on Fox and Fox dumped Bill O'Reilly. Um, I know that's pretty drastic, but sometimes I look at it through that perspective. Like, if you're not getting changed, then change it up a bit. Um, do we have examples of people getting organised, women getting organised in that, in that respect? And, in fact, even further than that, diversity of people of colour. Australian television does not reflect... Our screens do not we reflect our streets. We are appalling. It's Austra really bad. Australians are not good at reflecting themselves back on our television screens. And it can actually be... One of the jokes I used to make with a couple of my friends who are also women of colour is that we'll never be on a television panel together because they only ever need one of us. Hmm. Uh, yet two white blokes wouldn't be a problem, of course. And, yeah, we're not good at it because we don't focus on it and we don't keep it at the forefront of our minds. I think in terms of uh, that campaigning work and that call-out culture and the saying we want change on an individual issue, I mean, there... It tends to go through in Australia, those big campaigning organisations, the change.org petitions will go up, sometimes get up, will get on board. There's a really great uh, gender equality group called Fair Agenda who are a campaigning group who are doing some really good things. Destroy the Joint uh, can be excellent. There's also a number of women who are out there doing the work when it comes to uh, media headlines and how they need to be improved. Jane Gilmore is really good in that space. And there are also a number of uh, women who are starting to... Uh, look at how we respond to the number of women who are dying at the hands of male partners or former male partners in this country, um, including groups that are holding vigils on the steps of state parliament in Victoria uh, every week or more regularly a lot of the time, uh, and groups that are making sure that they recognise that in the press and also start to have that conversation about, even at that level, even when we are recognising the death of a woman at the hands of her partner or the hands of any man in our society, we give some deaths much more attention than others. And the women that we tend to pay attention to are young, straight, beautiful white women. Mm. Uh, but a migrant woman, for example, uh, whose husband murders her, doesn't make the front page. Um, if a sex worker is killed uh, by a client, 
doesn't make the front page. We just don't pay attention in the same way. We genuinely do value some lives more than others mm. um, in the press and as a community. Um, one uh, last question before we wrap up, and I just want to turn our attention back to politics. Um, since uh, Juliet Gillard gave her misogyny speech in 2012, um, I wanted to get a th- your thoughts on whether or not um, has the parliament become more toxic than it was back then when she called it out? And I just did a bit of research and I'm going to names like Sarah Hansen-Young, Julie Bishop, Emma Husser, Julie Banks, um, you know, a number of women have come out since then and said, you know, this is, this is how I've been treated in this chamber. Or even putting that aside, uh, I went to a... Um, there's an event that Melbourne University run uh, a leadership program for women called Pathways of Politics um, that I speak at once a year. And there was an alumni event the other day and some of the um, alumni who have now gone into politics were talking about their first experiences walking into the chamber and they were just going, it's quite a masculine environment. Like, there's a lot of yelling going on here, you know. Um, and I, I hadn't even thought about it. You know, another one of these moments where I had to sort of, you know, check my white privilege and I was going you know when you think about it actually it's, it's, for, if it, it's a workplace oh Not, and it's super adversarial and yeah, yeah absolutely there was a fantastic it's a bit old now but I think it's still worth checking out there's a fantastic speech given by Anne Summers about 12 months after Gillard's misogyny speech where she said if Gillard had been an employee in any other workplace in Australia there is no question she would have a very strong case under the Fair Work Act mm. like yeah. She, she was not treated fairly at work um, because of what she had to put up with and what she had to cop. I think um, in terms of the parliament, I think there are two things. I don't think broadly the parliament itself has improved when it comes to behaviour and the treatment of women and I don't think the media's interaction with politics in terms of the treatment of women has improved. However, I think the voices of women and women's willingness to call out bullshit has heightened Uh, And I think that comes from a women's movement that says to them, we've got your back. Uh, So if you do call this out, if you do say something, if you choose to uh, speak up about what's happened to you and you absolutely don't have to, but if you choose to, there are lots of women who will have your back. And I think that is really important and that is critical and that excites me. And I think there's been some reflection from a number of uh, women MPs Um, within progressive parties who've said simply having more women in the place helps. I know there's been some talks of a cross-party women's caucus. I was going to ask you that. that... I would love to see that happen. I I don't know where that's at, but Sarah Hanson-Young spoke at an event um, for Future Women, which is the publication I work for at the moment, uh, about four months ago and she said that there was some really active interest from across parties and she'd be pursuing that in the new parliament. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, I'd really like to see that happen. But I do think... Freak the blokes out as well. Oh, it would freak people out massively. Can you imagine the headlines in The Australian? Can you even imagine? Oh, just because, you know, politics is about power and all of a sudden there's meetings going on. Oh, it'd be like vagina takeover type headlines. End of the world kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because some women met in a room (laughs) and talked about stuff. Absolutely. Outrageous. But but the fact that Labor and Liberal women are getting in the same room and talking about stuff would just drive... Blow everyone's mind. Yeah. (laughs) We can only hope. Uh, Before we go, uh, do you have anything you want to plug? You're doing a lot of things these days. You're a very busy woman, so I just thought we'd give you an opportunity to... Oh, that's very kind. Um, uh, Yeah, I suppose it's just read my stuff. Uh, I um, write a column every fortnight in the Sydney Morning and Herald and The Age about gender and politics. Um, I write for Future Women very regularly. I've got a few new book projects in the works, but can't talk about them quite yet. As soon as Penguin lets me, I will tell people. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks.